I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2004. Enjoy. I am very honored to be speaking today on the morning show with Carnes Lord, a professor of strategy at the Naval War College, uh, someone who served uh, in uh, the administration of uh, President Ronald Reagan and also uh, in, in the Bush administration as well. And uh, he is most recently the author of a book called The Modern Prince, What Leaders Need to Know Now. Uh, Carnes Lord is a, a student of history that doesn't begin to do justice to uh, the work that he has done over the years. He is a, a translator of, of Aristotle and has studied uh, uh, all kinds of important thinkers and philosophers uh, o over the years and leaders, uh, Machiavelli among them. And that is part of the uh, inspiration for this remarkable and thought-provoking new book called The Modern Prince. And we have Carnes Lord with us for a few minutes to uh, talk about it on the morning show today. Carnes Lord, we welcome you to the program. Thank you very much. If I may, could I ask you just briefly about the uh, discipline of strategy uh, if you are professor of strategy at the Naval War College, tell us a little bit about what that means and what kind of work you do with that uh, particular responsibility. Well, um, the Naval War College is an institution that is geared to uh, uh, to teaching mid-career military officers uh, sort of the higher reaches of military art or science. Um, I think the most well-known course we have here is part of the core curriculum that everybody takes. It's, it's called the Strategy and Policy Course. And it um, starts in the ancient world with the Peloponnesian War and comes up to essentially uh, the Terror War. and spans that entire period, uh, touches the American Revolution and uh, a number of other uh, recent conflicts. And the idea is to still look at the fundamentals of uh, war and its relationship to politics or to national policy um, and uh, how you know how military force is employed in historical uh, circumstances. What are the pitfalls? Uh, uh, what are the mistakes leaders have made in the past? Uh, what do military officers have to be mindful of? You know, as they as they contemplate from you know fairly senior positions in the military, uh, these kinds of events. I imagine that given. The, the way in which technology, among other things, has really changed the whole nature of what war is like and how war is waged now uh, in the modern world. A, a great deal has, has changed for someone like you trying to teach uh, wartime strategy. Well, that's right. And, of course, there's <clears throat> controversy uh, over you know the extent to which technology really has radically changed uh, the way war is conducted or whether the lessons from these old conflicts are still relevant. Uh, um, there's something called the uh, the revolution in military affairs, which really is just the uh, the application of electronic technologies to you know to combat computers and advanced communications and so forth. And some people argue that that really has transformed the nature of war, and others are skeptical about that claim. But this is really the heart of debates that are going on now within our defense establishment. Your new book is called The Modern Prince, What Leaders Need to Know Now. Uh, for our listeners, we should probably first explain the title of the book and uh, its uh, very specific inspiration. Well, Machiavelli's Prince is a very famous, probably the most famous 
treatise on leadership that's ever been written in the uh, 16th century. Machiavelli was a, a Florentine in Italy. He was essentially the national security advisor, really, of the Florentine Republic. Um, so he had a lot of direct experience with the politics of his own day and uh, the leadership of the Italian states then. And uh, it's a book that's very critical about leadership in the 16th century. And uh, um, my book, similarly, is not a, it's not a peon to leadership, but looks critically at uh, contemporary leaders and, and tries to figure out what leadership is all about in, uh, in contemporary democracy. One thing you uh, do in your new book is that you try to parallel the structure of Machiavelli's uh, original, uh, both in uh, the number of chapters, if I'm not mistaken, right. 26, and also, uh, in, in some respects, the, just sort of the scope and breadth of the book, uh, in that, that, that both works are, are relatively brief, given the uh, complexity of, of the topic. You probably could have written thousands upon thousands of, of, of pages. Uh, I, I suspect that, that, uh, that it was a very conscious decision on, on, your, on your part to, to not do that. Well, that's right, and Machiavelli was a great model in that mm -hmm. regard. Um, you know, the shorter the book, the more chance of it actually being read. <laughs> and uh, Machiavelli wrote some long books, too, uh, and they're not much read. Uh, but The Prince is, uh, you know, you can read it in the, an afternoon. Um, so, you know, now that very much was on my mind. And uh, it's also not, uh, it's not a conventional scholarly book, although there's a lot of reference to history and philosophy, some to philosophy and whatnot. But um, it's meant to be a practical, kind of a practical, uh, not a handbook exactly, but, uh, you know, geared toward people with practical interest in the way politics works in the real world and not, you know, to academic political science. I say that as an academic political scientist. <laughs> so uh, if, if I understand correctly, Machiavelli's intention was that he hoped that the leaders of his day would read his book and benefit from it, and it sounds like you have at least uh, partly that uh, same intent with your work. I do. That's right. Yeah. One of the things which you talk about in the book, which is, uh, I, I suppose, uh, especially provocative, shall we say, is that you are really trying to draw parallels between uh, today's political leaders, uh, even in democracies, or especially in democracies, with what we would consider... Uh, rather autocratic figures of, of, of yesteryear. Uh, ancient princes, for instance, and kings, absolute rulers. We tend to think of them as, as an entirely different species of leader. And uh, you are saying in the pages of this book that, uh, in fact, they are, are, are closely related and need to be. Uh, that's right. Well, there's really a, a spectrum of leadership, kind of a continuum um, you know, we do tend to make a very uh, absolute distinction between, uh, you know, dictators and democratic leaders, as you know, we sometimes call them. But, you know, if you look around the world, um, that's kind of misleading uh, as a way to characterize leaders. I mean, in some dem democracies, at least paper democracies, you have extremely autocratic leaders even today. And, uh, you know, then there's some sort of more traditional societies where you may have a king, but the king is not an absolute monarch, and there may be you know, various forms of constitutional government, there are tribes and clans and whatnot to limit you know, monarchic power. So Saudi Arabia is an example of that. Um, 
you know, so again, uh, there, you know, leadership takes many forms, and uh, I think one of the key arguments I make is that there's been kind of a, a drift in contemporary democracies, and particularly in the United States, but some others do, uh, toward a more um, kind of executive style of, of national leadership, uh, as opposed to or at the expense of Congress or parliaments. Um, and I think we're, you know, we're not sufficiently attuned to this, and I think there are real dangers there. Um, <clears throat> And um, uh, so I, you know, I actually call for uh, uh, an attempt to try, try to revive um, deliberation in in Congress uh, in our country. Uh, and I think you know Congress actually has fallen down on its own its, its leadership responsibilities to some degree. You say some interesting things about the role of the public uh, in a democracy, and. Uh, and how, uh, the, 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 at least theoretically, in a democracy, uh, it is the people that in some way rule. But you, you explain that, in fact, the practice is, uh, is, is not that. And, and you're, I'm not, I, I don't think you really believe that it, that it even should be or, or, or can be ruled by the people in the purest sense of the word. Explain exactly your, your perspective on that. Well, yeah, um, that's a good question. If you look back at the history of democracy, um, and this is part of the reason I go back to the ancient world, because what you had there, and you haven't really had in more modern times, is a pure democracy, uh, where you know the people rule in a very direct sense through popular assemblies and juries. You know, in ancient Athens, for example, the juries would be 500 people, and uh, you know, and they'd be making decisions uh, that. Uh, you know, that directly reflected popular sentiment, and there weren't, you know, in other words, there weren't uh, professional judges in the sense that we have. So, you know, it was a very different conception of democracy. And, um, I mean, our own conception is rooted in the the constitutionalism of modern politics that, you know, arose in the 17th, 18th centuries, and enshrined in our constitution that, you know, we have a, I mean, a constitution that, that in a sense, rules us rather than the people in any you know, any direct way, and I mean, I think that's probably a good thing. Um, anyway, that's that's a kind of a first answer to to what could be a very complicated question. So you really see uh, the 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 essential role of of a leader in in light of that concern about about the people that uh, we need to be realistic about who the people are, the what the public is, and uh, and 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 a leader needs to be more than someone that just reflects what the people think. Uh, what does a leader need to do uh, instead of simply rubber stamping whatever prevailing public opinion might be? Well, yes, and I do um, I point out the danger in you know, having a leader who is, um, has a too direct relationship with the people. Again, in ancient Greece, uh, Athens in particular, you had this phenomenon known as you know, the demagogue, um, and, you know, that's that's a word that's familiar, I think, in our own experience today, and there's been a certain uh, uh, drift, again, I would say, in the direction of more demagogic-style politics in throughout the West, uh, in this country in particular, um, and, uh, you know, where presidents appeal directly to, you know, to the people over the heads of other elected leaders in Congress or... Um, you know, uh, 
intellectuals, other elites. And, you know, I think the nature of executive leadership has to have some of that. But um, this is really something fairly new in our country. It goes back to the really the uh, conception of the presidency that developed out of the progressive movement at the turn of the 20th century. And, you know, we've seen it in some of our strong modern presidents like Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt uh, and, and later presidents and Bill Clinton uh, very much in that, you know, that progressive mold of, um, you know, being a very energetic, uh, visible leader and, and letting himself be, you know, de- developing a kind of personal relationship with the, you know, the public. Um, you know, and that has its dangers, clearly. I think, well, I think Clinton exemplifies the dangers personally. But, um, <clears throat> you know, again, there has to be, I think, a balance between the positive leadership that presidents can and do uh, exercise in, in this country and elsewhere. Uh, you know, they can't just listen to public opinion polls. Uh, you know, President Bush, good example of uh, that kind of leadership in the, you know, the, the war against terror that we've found ourselves in. Uh, he didn't take any opinion polls, and, you know, deciding what to do there. And I think, you know, showed has shown uh, great courage and, and actually, uh, you know, even in more recent uh, months and, um, you know, going against a kind of a mini tide of criticism and, and whatnot of policies. Uh, clearly, uh, leaders have a particular role to play in times of war and crisis. Um, and I think this is recognized pretty clearly in our whole constitutional setup where presidents are, you know, given command of the armed forces, and, and clearly, uh, you know, that's one of the leading functions that uh, the founders of the United States had in mind when they created a, you know, a relatively strong uh, executive. Um, but, uh, you know, but the other functions as well, that uh, in our federal system in particular, the president is the one elected official who really has kind of a comprehensive view of what's going on in the country as a whole. Uh, since we're made up of states and, and politics is very much, you know, a local thing. Um, so our presidents, and I think it's generally understood now, uh, uh, you know, have an overall perspective on national problems, and the direction that, you know, countries as a whole should take that uh, does go beyond, you know, for example, uh, the elected representatives in Congress. We're speaking with Carnes Lord. He is the author of The Modern Prince, What Leaders Need to Know Now. The book examines uh, important characteristics of, of strong leaders, uh, drawing not only on, on contemporary observation, but very much from um, the pages of, of history. Uh, Mr. Lord, I don't remember if we, we touched on this earlier, but it might be interesting for us to, to get a sense of what galvanized Machiavelli to write his original work. And... Uh, what that has to do with the world uh, in which we live now, if there are meaningful uh, parallels that, that we can draw? Well, yeah, um, that's another good question. Uh, Machiavelli looked around at the, um, the princes of his day and saw some characteristic ills, and one of them was um, a, uh, a failure to take seriously, actually, the... Uh, the requirements of uh, of warfare and uh, becomes quickly complicated by uh, the question of the role of the Catholic Church in the Italy of his day, which I think Machiavelli saw as part of the problem, actually, and 
kind of undermining uh, <clears throat> the uh, the old sort of Roman military virtues and, and, and so forth. And Machiavelli sort of looks back to ancient Rome as as a kind of model of uh, statecraft and, and you know and military prowess. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I think he also saw just a kind of a want of, of energy in, um, you know, particularly the hereditary princes of the day who didn't really have to work hard enough at, you know, at being, uh, being leaders because they were kind of guaranteed um, their positions by birth and so forth. Uh, and at the same time, um, the, the republics that existed in his day were, were very sort of unstable, uh, constant internal conflicts between the, uh, the upper class, the nobles, and the, and the people, and, uh, and the princes weren't uh, often very good at, at managing those kind of internal conflicts. Uh, well, how does this relate to, to my book? Um, I think our, our leaders um, are made also a bit lazy by the fact that we do have constitutions. Um, I think there's a tendency for leaders, you know, coming into office to, in some ways, take for granted um, the stability of contemporary democracies. Now, clearly, I think our constitutional democracies are a great advance, in fact, over ancient or Renaissance uh, republics. Um, but it's certainly not the case that, um, you know, just having a constitution written down on paper <laughs> guarantees that um, your politics are going to be, you know... Uh, uh, okay, uh, they're not. Um, and in some countries, in fact, there's a great discrepancy between the Constitution that's on paper and the what I call the regime that actually exists. And um, I think one of the pitfalls of contemporary leadership is a, just the failure to, to actually fully understand the system that one is governing, um, because the realities of uh, the regime, um, which are realities of elite uh, governance, uh, to put not too fine a point on it, um, are, are kind of underappreciated. And, you know, again, we have a whole kind of popular conception of how democracies work, which, you know, it's, it's a little remote from the reality, the fact that you know, people vote four, every four years for, you know, for leaders. Uh, well, what happens in the, in the meantime, you know? Uh, and so I argue that uh, this is one of Machiavelli's insights that uh, it's the relationship between princes and and uh, the barons of the you know the uh, the society in, in various areas that it's kind of the key problem of governance um, in a day-to-day -day sense and so I, the book focuses very much on the relationship of democratic leaders with the elites uh, that dominate the the key institutions in our societies courts, bureaucracy, uh, <clears throat> the military, diplomatic service, the intelligence service, uh, and, and so forth and so on. And, uh, and I tried to identify you know, what it is that leaders need to know about these particular disciplines uh, uh, in order to deal effectively with the people that, you know, that, that run them. Um, and again, I think this is a, a much underappreciated problem of uh, contemporary governance or statecraft that uh, you know is, is uh, just too much neglected by by most of our uh, politicians. 
One of the most interesting and immediately accessible things you do in your book is you uh, examine the leadership of of figures from history. And there are surprises here uh, in that, for instance, you you display uh, some admiration uh, for at least certain facets of of, of, of certain figures that that uh, on the surface we might not immediately think of as admirable, but but leaders, strong leaders, uh, from whom you believe there are some significant lessons to be learned. Well, that's right. Um, one story of contemporary leadership that's uh, kind of neglected, I think, is the um, the leaders in the third world or the less developed world uh, who um, came to power early 20th century or you know, throughout the century in societies that you know really weren't democratic, had no history of democracy, and yet they tried to to bring these societies into the modern world. Um, I'm thinking of people like Ataturk in, in Turkey uh, uh, in the early years of the 20th century during World War One, who, who uh, took a country that had just been defeated in a world war, uh, had stripped of its empire, and totally remade it into a secular uh, republic that had been the center of, of uh, Islam as a religion, uh, and he completely severed that connection. I mean, this was a major uh, transformation of a country, and um, I think we don't, you know, we don't sufficiently uh, look at these figures and, and think of what we might learn from them today. I think... Uh, Ataturk, actually, there are many lessons that uh, Muslim leaders can draw from the Turkish experience earlier in the century uh, applied to them, their own situation today. Um, many of these uh, Middle Eastern societies are, you know, not really much different uh, than what Turkey was back, you know, 80, 90 years ago. And it's, I think it's surprising, you know, if you look at uh, contemporary political science and how little studied these figures are. Another one is uh, Haile Selassie of Ethiopia, who was the, you know, the reigning the, the royal family of Ethiopia, and he, he transformed what was essentially a, like a medieval feudal society uh, in the space of you know, several decades into something kind of resembling uh, a modern state. And it's true, uh, you know, these, these people uh, had to do some tough things along the way to do that, uh, like wage war against some of their own uh, know, uh, Barrett's, which Haile Selassie did to great effect. Um, so, you know, these these are not Democrats in the sense that we we understand Democratic leaders, but they're figures who are historically extremely important. And uh, I think, again, this is one of the lessons that one can draw from Machiavelli, who has a lot to say about uh, founders, as he calls them, the founders of states, uh, are you know, in many ways, the kind of pinnacle of leadership. And there are many lessons that you can draw from the study of these these people um, and the situations they face. And again, uh, I think because we, you know, we tend to live in this sheltered world of constitutions and constitutional governments, we don't often enough kind of look beyond and, out, you know, outside the constitutional order. Um, and, uh, you know, that's where Machiavelli can help us. Hmm. Uh, closer to home, both geographically and and, 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 and temporally as well, uh, you return um, a fair number of times in your book to uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and uh, you you uh, 
give us some insights into what you believe made him a, 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 an exceptionally effective leader, particularly in what I believe at one point in the book you call um, hidden hand leadership. The fact that we, we would look at him and not immediately think of a strong, forceful leader, which, in fact, you believe he was. Well, I think the two greatest presidents of the post-World War II era are Reagan and, and Eisenhower, uh, but they're very different. You know, and with Reagan, as people used to say, what you saw was what you got. Um, uh, with Eisenhower, it was quite the opposite. Uh, Eisenhower, in his own day, had a kind of a poor reputation, particularly with the media, who made fun of him for spending too much time on the golf course, and, you know, and for garbling his syntax. Um, there's this great anecdote where, at one point, he was about to step out to a press conference and uh, his press secretary was nervous that he'd <clears throat> be asked the difficult question, and Eisenhower said, uh, don't worry, I'll just go out there and confuse him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this was, you know, this was very deliberate. Um, he deliberately, uh, I mean, here was a man who'd been a, you know, four-star general, and uh, he knew how to, you know, how to run things and how to, uh, how to run people. And yet, um, far from, you know, bringing a kind of a, a style of command to the White House, he was extremely uh, politic in his dealings with people and uh, always made sure that other people got credit for things that were really his ideas, uh, like his Secretary of State. You know, he was, John Foster Dulles was regarded widely as the architect of Eisenhower's foreign policy, but it just wasn't true. Um, but Eisenhower didn't mind him getting the credit. It's pretty remarkable to think about it. Not long ago, I interviewed Peter Robinson, one of uh, President Reagan's speechwriters, who's r- written a, a memoir of his experience uh, working uh, under President Reagan. One of the observations he makes, which I think is an interesting one, is how uh, if an outside observer looked at the Reagan White House and how it operated, it was nothing like, for instance, the West Wing on television, where one has a sense that all the energy and focus and tension uh, surrounds Martin Sheen's uh, uh, president. Uh, and in a sense, uh, in the Reagan administration, uh, he was sort of the eye of calm in the midst of all the, 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 the turbulence and tension uh, around him. I thought that was an interesting uh, observation. As someone who was part of the Reagan administration, do you agree with that? Oh, I think so, absolutely. Uh, no, he was a, an incredibly serene figure. Uh, and, yeah, things kind of swirled around him, and he, you know, he... he um, he just didn't like to be bothered by details of, you know, personnel management and, uh, you know, day-to-day crises. Uh, he had his eye on, you know, a few big things, which he pursued with great vigor and, and, and relentlessly. Uh, um, I've never watched the West Wing, so I can't, I can't comment on, on the similarities there or, or, or lack of them. But, um, you know, at, at the same time, you know, one could argue that uh, he sometimes didn't get involved enough in things like personnel disputes in the, within the administration that, you know, that did cause some, some political damage. Uh, I'm thinking of it's actually a kind of a parallel to the present where you had the secretaries of state defense, you know, fighting each other uh, frequently. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so that was the, that was the kind of downside of that, that style. Hmm. You do mention uh, that Contemporary politicians in this world in which we live cannot afford to neglect the art of war. 
what are, are the most uh, important principles which uh, uh, leaders like our current president and leaders of other great powers uh, in the world need to be mindful of, in your view? Well, uh, I think the, the critical thing, really, and this is the focus of my chapter on war in the book, uh, is really the civil-military relationship. Um, and here, as in some, some other areas, uh, there tends to be an oversimplistic view uh, prevailing of, you know, what is the exact sphere of military as opposed to policy decision. Um, and uh, a certain tendency to feel that, well, you know, once the bullets start flying, you can just hand the conduct of war over to the generals. Um, and um, this is a recipe for disaster, <laughs> go back to World War One. that's a particularly clear case of it. Um, but uh, and this is what we teach in our strategy and policy course here at the War College, but, uh, you know, there's a need for uh, civilian attention, if not active engagement in a military conflict uh, at, um, you know, not only the highest level, but uh, even, you know, relating to particular campaigns and particularly at the beginning and the end of fighting, where you have a, a very critical moment where political and military concerns are in a delicate balance and uh, where, you know, both kinds of decision-making are going on and it's the coordination of them that's difficult and, and absolutely essential. I'll give an example of a recent case where um, we fell down, and this was at the end of um, the first Gulf War, where, um, for various reasons, we'll get into, um, you know, we we did not win the the outcome of that war to the extent that we should have because there wasn't adequate political engagement um, at the very end of the conflict phase of the war. Um, some people would say we've kind of repeated that here in Iraq. I think it may be too early to tell that, but there was a simpler problem that we had back then because we, you know, we didn't invade the entire country, but it was in deciding, uh, you know, the nature of the armistice or the truce, what kinds of terms we we're going to demand, and there wasn't a sufficient sort of political input into, uh, into that. Hmm. On the cover of your book, finally, uh, there are photographs. I recognize um, the current President Bush and President Reagan and Winston Churchill, and I believe and uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton, and uh, the top uh, fo- uh, the top image I am uh, assuming is Machiavelli. Well, it isn't, actually. It's Lorenzo de' Medici. Oh! uh, Well, thank you for the correction. Right. Uh, Who is he, and why does he belong uh, with those other images? Well, uh, he was the great Florentine leader who, uh, actually the generation before Machiavelli, uh, but uh, Machiavelli's prince is dedicated to his nephew, I think. Uh, And uh, he was, you know, he was just one of the great Renaissance princes of, of, uh, of the day. Um, so, and yeah, Hamilton is, uh, uh, also interesting because he's the only figure here actually wasn't a, a statesman or a, a leader, a, a head of state. However, um, he and Machiavelli had something I think very interesting in common. They were both essentially what we would call today the, the national security advisor <laughs> to, um, you know, to, to the leader. Um, Hamilton was really George Washington's equivalent of a national security advisor for uh, for many years and 
was one of the uh, the reason I I mean I'm a great admirer of his, but uh, um, one of the great things I think we can learn from Hamilton is the role of economic statecraft in a democracy. Hamilton was the, of course Secretary of the Treasury in the 1790s and was really the architect of the American economy um, and uh, helped to steer the country in you know in a in a whole new direction that he kind of conceived. Uh, you know, emphasis on manufacturing as opposed to agriculture, for example. Uh, I mean, he had a huge impact on uh, the later development of commerce and, and manufacturing in the country. So, you know, he's a really an underappreciated founding father, and was partly for that reason I'm happy to see him on the cover there. Hmm. Well, the book is a very, very thought-provoking one, and, uh, and, and indeed one can only hope that, uh, that it will find its way not only into the hands of, of many ordinary readers, but uh, also uh, in, into the hands of, of present or, or, or future leaders who uh, need to carefully consider uh, the role that they play in, in shaping world events. The book is called The Modern Prince, What Leaders Need to Know Now. The author, Carnes Lord, the book is published by Yale University Press. Carnes Lord, I really enjoyed the uh, opportunity to speak with you today on The Morning Show, and I thank you. Thank you very much. I just want to add that Mr. Lord's book was re-released back in 2018 under the title The Modern Prince, What Machiavelli Can Teach Us in the Age of Trump.